If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Will. As I said earlier, and I serve as the, I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at this church. And, um, you know, one of the things you'll learn, you'll hear from me often is uh, I like sports. And so that you, you, you're going to get some sports references here and there. So today, the sports reference, just one, uh, comes from Mike Tyson. You might know who Mike Tyson is. Uh, known as being one of the greatest boxers of all time, former world heavyweight champion, not known particularly for being a philosopher, uh, but one, uh, he has said some profound things at times in his life. One of those profound things is he said in an interview one time, reporters were saying, oh, your opponent has all these plans, and he said he's going to do this, and he's going to knock you out in this round, and he's, gonna, he's got all these. And Mike Tyson said, and I can't do a good Mike Tyson impression, but I'll just say it as it's written. Mike Tyson said to the reporters, yeah, well, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. You know, one of the great lies that we Christians tend to believe is that if we obey Jesus, that if we live the life that we believe God has called us to live, that there will be no struggle. That, hey, I... If God called me to this, it's gonna, it, I, there will be no struggle. I'm going to do this, and if I follow Jesus, it will be easy, and there will be no bumps along the way, and everything will go smoothly, and there will be no opposition. There will be no resistance. And so we have, all these, we have these moments in our lives. I don't know if you've ever had this moment in your life where you, you just feel particularly motivated to step out in faith and do great things for God or for others or Perhaps even, perhaps even your own spiritual life. You have these moments of faith where you say, I'm going to step out and I'm going to do this thing that God has called me to do. And on those days and on the, in those moments, we're excited, aren't we? We're ready. We're like, God has called us to this. I'm starting this new journey. I have a plan. I'm going for it. And then opposition comes. And it, surpri- it always surprises us. Why does it always surprise us? We're not ready for it. We're never ready for it. And we get frustrated, we get discouraged, and then we become tempted to bail on the plan that God has called us to work and the life that God has called us to live. You see, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah and for the last three weeks. And the book of Nehemiah, it's a book about the people of Israel, particularly the, people, the tribe of Judah, who through the leadership of Nehemiah and through the power of God, they rebuild the broken walls of their city, the city of Jerusalem, and they they see revival and restoration brought to their nation. The city is rebuilt, the people's lives are restored, and so far, that's that's what the book of Nehemiah is, and so far, we've studied the first three chapters, so far what has happened is Nehemiah, the great leader, has set out on a mission to rebuild the walls of the city. He has a vision, he has a plan. He has the favor of the king of Persia, the power, the one who has the power to help Nehemiah uh, p- pull off this thing. But not only that, God's hand is on Nehemiah. I mean, like we see the power of God on Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has a team of people working with him. The people have gathered around his vision. They're working together as the people of God to carry out the plans of God, the mission of God that God has called them to. Everything is going great and everything is going according to plan. But everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And today we're looking at the part of the story where opposition comes in. And I'm I'm being optimistic today. We're going to tackle chapters four, five, and six. So I'm hoping, I'm planning, we're not going to be here all night. But if you stay, there's popsicles at the end, okay? So 
But we see in these chapters how Nehemiah and the people of God, they respond to opposition. And many of you, I know that many of you right now are seeking to rebuild your lives after a year and a half of COVID. And you're going, I'm trying to rebuild my life after everything has just crumbled in the last year and a half. Some of you have really great visions for your life. You have great visions and plans for the life that God has called you to live. You have plans and you have dreams for your life, for your marriage, for your children, for your career, for your own spiritual growth. And those are good things. It's good to have a vision and it's good to have a plan. We talked about that last week. It's, it's good to have a desire to want to step out in faith and do great things for God and with God. But are you prepared for the opposition that will inevitably come when you set out to live a life of purpose and a life of obedience to God. Because one thing I've learned in my own life is that when you set out to do anything meaningful, there will always be opposition, both from the outside and from the inside. And the life of Nehemiah, I think, can help us prepare for this opposition. And so, like I said, there's two types of opposition we experience when we set out to do something great for God. The first kind of opposition is opposition from the outside. When you set out to rebuild broken walls in your life, like the people of Israel set out to rebuild the broken walls of their city, there will always be enemies at the gate. There will be always be enemies on the outside of the community or in the outside of your life throwing stones and insults and humiliation your way and trying to derail you from the life that God has called you to live. One of the things my family and I have been doing a lot lately is we've been having family movie time. Disney Plus for the win, okay? Um, the whole family gathers together in the living room, and uh, Rebecca and I, we show our children some of our favorite kids' movies from the 90s, okay? Yesterday, we watched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid back to back. It was amazing. Um, there's Mighty Ducks, you know, there's uh, The Big Green, which is like a lesser version of The Mighty Ducks, but still pretty good. Uh, the nine, there's Little Rascals, which is, I mean, that was, that's a remake of a, my parents, you know, and then I got, we got, but the 90s were a great time for kids' movies. Maybe that's just a 90s kid being nostalgic, but the 90s were a great time for kids' movies. But if we're honest, we have to admit, they're all kind of exactly the same. They're all, it's the same movie over and over and over again. And one of the things that makes them similar is there's always a group of two or three bullies, you know? And the bullies, the job of the, every one of the 90s movies has a group of bullies. And their job is to serve as the opposition to whomever is the protagonist. And the bullies, they do a few things. They intimidate, they mock, they belittle, they humiliate, they discourage. They, they do this to the protagonist. And it's always, it's always one kid with spiky hair and one kid with a backwards hat and a leather jacket. It's always the exact same looking kids, you know? But their job in the, in the story, in the plot of the story, is to, there's no vision in their life. Their, their only job is to just throw opposition at the person who's trying to do something worthwhile. Well, the book of Nehemiah also has bullies, and three of them. And their names are Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and they show up all over the narrative. They show up everywhere to discourage, to intimidate, and to mock the people of God while they're working. And these guys, Sanballat, Geshem, and Tobiah, they've got no vision for their own life. There's no vision for them to, to do something meaningful with their lives, to accomplish something great with their lives, to do something for others or for God. The, the, their only 
vision for their lives is to tear down others who are actually doing something. You guys know people like this? And they show up first in Nehemiah chapter 2. This is verse 19. Uh, It says, But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem heard of our plan to rebuild the wall, Nehemiah says, They jeered at us, and they despised us, and they said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, Nehemiah says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So that's when they were introduced to them in chapter 2. Well, then in chapter 4, after the people of God actually start doing work on the wall, these guys show up again to mock the people. Now they're not just going after Nehemiah. They're going after Nehemiah's people and his team. And they they make fun of the wall. This is actually kind of funny when you read it. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, it says, Now when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So here, I mean, there's kind of some humor in this. Sambalot discourages them, and he says, do you guys really think you, you think you guys can rebuild the wall? You don't even have enough resources. What, do you, what can you guys do? And then Tobiah comes in and throws in a lame insult. And like, it's like he's trying to impress his buddy, and he's like, your wall is so weak that if a, a fox climbs on it, it will fall down. And you're like, oh, burn, way to go, Tobiah. Great insult, you know. Well, Nehemiah, in this moment, after he hears this, he responds with a pretty honest prayer. You didn't know this kind of stuff was in the Bible. This Nehemiah, he says, God, hear my prayer. We are despised. Turn back our enemies' taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah throws up a pretty like serious prayer to God. But then Nehemiah gets back to work, and he ignores these guys. He just ignores them. He's like, you know what? You guys throw your stuff. You guys hurl your insults. We're going to get back to work. But Nehemiah has, he's got resolve in the face of all the intimidation and the bullying. But we find out in chapter 4 that the people, they actually don't have the same strength and resolve that Nehemiah has. They actually get very discouraged when the opposition comes. And it affects them. And they get, look at chapter 4, verse 10. It says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll never be able to rebuild the wall. You see, they're believing the lies of what the opposition was saying about them. They started out with these promises of God. And they were like, remember last week, let us rise up and build. We're going to do this. And then when opposition comes and says, you guys can't do this, they go, yeah, you know what? The opposition's right. Maybe we can't do it. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. They become discouraged, they become fatigued, and they become afraid. And they begin second-guessing the plan and the work that God has placed on their lives. And so Nehemiah has to step in and remind them what they were called to and how God has been faithful. It says, do not be afraid of them. This is chapter 4, verse 14. Remember the Lord. Remember. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then in chapter 6, I encourage you to go back and read this 
after the service today, maybe this week. Um, Sambal, basically, just you get like, they, they take it up a notch in chapter 6. And Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, they just go after Nehemiah. They conspire against him. They try to trick him. They try to entrap him, lure him into situations that would disqualify him from his position. They spread false rumors about Nehemiah. They attempt to undermine his credibility. They attempt to undermine his integrity, and they question his motives publicly. And all the while, Nehemiah is saying, God, give me strength. God, give me strength. God, give me strength. Remember, I told you, Nehemiah is a book about prayer. And Nehemiah, there's all these little short prayers where Nehemiah's like, and I prayed to God for strength because these guys were hurling insults at me. And I prayed to God for strength. I prayed to God for strength. Listen, I don't know if you've ever faced actual opposition from someone when you're trying to do the will of God. But it's hard. It's really hard when you're trying to do the right thing when you're trying to rebuild your marriage or when you're trying to rebuild your life or when you're trying to uh, get sober or when you're trying to uh, leave behind a, a, a type of life that you, don't, that you know is not honoring to God and you say, I wanna live this way and you start walking this way and there's people at, on the edges that want to discourage you from living the life that God has called you to live. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation but it is hard and it's discouraging. When you try to stand up and walk in the way of Jesus, you will almost always encounter some kind of opposition. Sometimes it's actual people. That, I mean, just people that have nothing better to do but to try to tear you down when you're doing something worthwhile. But other times, we see in the Scriptures that you have to recognize there's a real enemy in this world. Uh, it, the Scriptures call him Satan, the accuser, the tempter, the discourager. And what he will do is the same thing that Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem did. He will humiliate you. He will, tempt to, he will try to tempt you and pull you away from the life that God has called you to live. He will try to discourage you and disqualify you and sidetrack you from walking in the way that Jesus has paved for you. And we need to be mindful of opposition outside of our lives that seek to derail what's, what God is doing in our lives. So several years ago, there was a pastor uh, who wanted to start a church right here in Brooklyn, actually not too far from here. And he was doing great work. And he was serving the poor. He was feeding the homeless. He was helping families rebuild after Hurricane Sandy. This was in, the, in 2012, 2013. And he was holding prayer meetings. He was gathering a team. And he and his wife, I mean, it looked like they were going to plant a church in their neighborhood. And it seemed like all these great things were happening. But then the New York Daily News decided to write a feature on the church. And the article begins, God's paratroopers are about to land in Brooklyn, and these holy rollers aren't thinking small. And you're like, oh, man. And the article goes on to mock the pastor and his family, even as the article highlights all the ways he's serving the city. It's like, yeah, maybe he's serving the homeless. Yeah, maybe he's building houses for people whose homes were destroyed. But do we really want some Jesus guy and some Bible thumpers in our neighborhood? And then the, the, the article basically ends by saying, you're not welcome here. Get out. And sadly, that church never made it off the ground. It never got established. It never got planted because if you Googled that church, the first thing that would come up was not their website, but was that article that was just mocking them. And the pastor and his family, discouraged, not long after that article was published, left the city. 
When you set out to build or rebuild anything for the sake of the kingdom of God, or when you seek to be faithful to God's call on your life, you will often face opposition. I don't know why, but there are people who just hate to see the work of Jesus done in your life and in this city. And, they, and, and you will face opposition, either from the outside, either from others, or from the enemy himself. And how do you keep going? When this happens, how do you keep working the plan that God has given you even after you've been punched in the mouth? Two things that uh, kind of subpoints under the uh, opposition from the outside is the first thing, if you're facing opposition from the outside, the first thing you need to do is remember that judgment belongs to God. When you face opposition, two, the two worst things that can happen are this. First, you can become so obsessed with all the enemies outside of your life that you, beget, that you become obsessed and angry at whatever or whomever your enemy or opposition is, and you become angry and you become distracted from the good work that God has given you, and you become focused on the opposition on the outside, and you forget to do the work that God has called you to do because you're so distracted. Opposition can distract you from doing the most important thing. The second really bad thing that can happen when you face opposition, is that you can get offended. You just become offended. And when you become offended, you lash out. And you stoop to their level. You let them, uh, you, you let them get to you, and you unleash. And you destroy your own credibility in the process, and you damage the good work you're doing by stooping to their level. You see, we live in a culture where it is very popular to be offended and to lash out. You can just see it with some people. It's, I mean, they live in a constant state of offense and rage. And the moment we're offended or opposed, it, there, is, there is a cultural current in our world today that tells us the moment you're offended, you must take justice into your own hands. You've got to silence the haters. You've got to, you know, attack the opposition. You've got to get on Twitter, and whatever they throw at you, you've got to send it right back. Tit for tat kind of thing. We feel this compulsion to put people in their place. And let me tell you, that is not a fruit of the Spirit. We are the people of God. We are a counterculture in this world. And we are not to be easily offended. We are not to be quick to be enraged. Our God is a God who is gracious and slow to anger, and we are to imitate our God by being gracious and slow to anger. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is one's glory to overlook an offense. It is one's glory to overlook an offense. That seems so hard, doesn't it? <laughs> I get offended all the time. I'm pretty easily offended. I feel easily disrespected. It's hard to be slow to anger. It's hard to overlook an offense. How can you possibly do that? Well, if you believe in a God of justice, a God who defends the weak, a God who, like Psalm 37 says, saves the righteous and protects them in times of trouble, if that's the kind of God you believe in, you don't have to be offended. And yet your anger can simmer much more slowly because you can trust that God can defend you. If you don't believe in a God who defends the weak, then you, you have to be offended and lash out at everything because who will defend you? But if you believe in a God who is a God of justice, you can trust, entrust vengeance and justice to him. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He prayed that prayer. Remember, 
where he was like, hear, O God, we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. And you're like, wow, that's an intense prayer. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. And a lot of people hear this and they go, man, this is why I can't with the Bible. Because you got people praying that God would destroy their enemies. Like, who would do that? Well, I mean, one question is, are we allowed to pray these prayers? Like, are we supposed to pray these prayers? A couple of things to acknowledge here. First, the Bible doesn't necessarily endorse Nehemiah's prayer. What does Jesus say about our enemies? Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know if when Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, he he had Nehemiah's prayer in mind. The Bible doesn't endorse Nehemiah's angry prayer as a particularly righteous prayer. It just, it, it, it records it for us because Nehemiah wrote the book and he's honest about what he prayed to God. We have to understand that just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean God is endorsing it. Polygamy's in the Bible doesn't mean God endorses it. We just see it recorded in the scriptures. But the second and really more important thing to notice is that in his public relationships with Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem, Nehemiah shows patience, he shows grace, he shows respect. He never lashes out at them. He doesn't stoop to their level. You know what he does? He ignores them. He prays for strength from God. He ignores his opposition and he keeps going. What you see is that in his private prayers, Nehemiah is excruciatingly honest with God. What most people tweet, die enemies, you know what I mean? Nehemiah prays to God. See, Nehemiah channels his frustration and his anger to God, not to Twitter. He, he channels his frustration to God. He says, God, I can't stand these guys. Punish them. He's honest with God, but then he leaves his burdens with God. And then you see, when he has public dealings with others, he entrusts justice and vengeance to God, and then he displays patience and wisdom and perseverance publicly with his life. And it's easy when we're offended and angry to try and avenge ourselves. That's what we want to do. But in most cases, that only distracts us and even discredits us. But if we believe in a God of justice, we can be like Nehemiah. We can pray honest prayers. God, these people are driving me crazy. They're hurting the work of uh, what you've called me to do. And God, would you do something about it? And then you trust God with that. And then you turn outwardly and you do the job that God has given you. And you do it with patience and perseverance. You know, we sing those songs, Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And we sing, He's fighting our battles. We don't sing those songs like people will say, Christians are so militaristic. What's with all this like militaristic language? It's not because, we don't sing these songs because we're, we're ready for war and we're ready to go. It's because we trust that God is fighting the war for us and we can be people of peace and patience and love, joy and kindness. And we trust that God will fight the battles for us and we will obey Christ and we'll love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So remember that God is a God of justice. Second thing you gotta remember when you face opposition is remember the faithfulness of God. When the people ultimately became discouraged and they wanted to quit, Nehemiah said to them, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He says to them, remember, look back to God's faithfulness. He's been great to us. He's been awesome. God's favor had been all over Nehemiah and the people from the very beginning of this book. 
God provided all the resources they needed to build the walls. It took, I mean, it really did take a series of divine interventions to get to this point where the people of Israel are rebuilding this wall. But the moment they become discouraged, they forget all of that, and they're tempted to walk away from the work that God had given them. And Nehemiah stands up as a good leader, and he says, before you give up, before you throw in the towel, remember God who has gone before us and has paved the way for us to get to this point. He fights discouragement with encouragement. Remember how great God is. Remember how awesome he is, how he has provided for us. You see, sometimes we get sidetracked because we forget to remember the Lord's faithfulness. And I'll tell you one of the ways that I fight discouragement. One of the things I believe God has called me to be a pastor. That's a calling I believe God has given me, and it's something that I do for the sake of his glory, for the sake of others, for the sake of his kingdom, because I believe he's gifted me and called me to do that very thing. And I face a lot of discouragement as a pastor. I second guess myself. There's a lot of doubt. And I can get easily get discouraged in ministry. I can easily get discouraged in the life and the calling that God has placed before me. Most of the time, I just discourage myself. Sometimes, however, people can be harsh and people can be critical. And I don't take criticism very well. It's hard for me. And I really do believe that, believe that God has called me to this work, but sometimes in my discouragement, I can doubt that calling. I can be tempted to quit. Right now, there are, I mean, in the last year and a half, I mean, it's like an endemic right now. Pastors are leaving the ministry like crazy right now because the last year and a half has just been so discouraging. I just, I'm like, how do you lead a congregation through COVID? How do you lead people through all this loss? And say, like, I don't feel up to the challenge. What do I have to offer? How could God ever use me? And the pastors all over the country feel that way. And one of the ways that I, and when I feel discouragement, I don't say all this to be like pity party for me. I'm just telling you, I get discouraged. I know you do as well. But when I get discouraged, one of the things I do is I have a bag. This sits in my office. This is in my drawer. This is my pick-me-up bag. It started as a folder. You see, pick-me-up. This is every email, every letter, every text message that anyone who I've had the privilege of serving as their pastor has sent me saying, through you, God has done this in my life. There are letters from you guys in here, right here, that, that say, hey, Will, that sermon that you preached spoke to me in this way, or Will, that counseling session did this. And listen, on my worst days, all it takes is for me to grab about three or four of these and read these, and it, it helps me get back on track. This is remembering God's faithfulness in my life and remembering that he has equipped me and called me, and he's actually using me. You know how hard that is to believe sometimes? You're like, God actually uses me. And I read these, and I go, wow, like, God has equipped me for this, and he has called me for this, to this, and is a reminder that God is good and that he uses even me to bless others, and his favor is on my life in all these ways. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that God is faithful and that he's doing a great work through us. Listen, I don't know what that looks like for you. I talked to one person uh, earlier today here in our church, and she said, I just take screenshots. Anybody sends me like a kind text message that encourages me, or when they say, when, when they encourage me with something God's doing in my life, they like, I put a screenshot and I have a folder on my phone that I can scroll through. My wife and I have some good friends who, that we went to college with who they have a bowl in their house, and they put stones in it. They're called, they call them stones of remembrance. 
And what they do, anytime God answers a prayer or anytime God uses them in some way or anytime God does something through their lives or through their family, they take a stone, I assume from their backyard or from a creek somewhere or whatever, and they take a Sharpie and they write what, how God had been faithful. And they write the date and they put it in this big bowl that sits in their living room. And when they're doubting God's calling on their family or God's favor on their family, they can pull out those stones and go, oh man, look at the way God was faithful to us back in 2016. Look at the way that God used us in that other family's life in 2018. Look at this, look at this. God is using us. You see, we need to have ways in which we do what Nehemiah says and remember that God is faithful. And just a side note, don't you want to be the kind of person who sends the kind of notes that helps people keep going? And, and you know, like, don't you want to be an encourager? The kind of person who says, man, that text message that you sent helped me keep going. We need to be encouragers, and we need to be encouraged. But we have opposition from the outside, but we also have opposition from the inside. You know, St. John of the Cross, Peter Abelard, and Thomas Aquinas, you know, ancient Christian theologians, they, have, they talk about what's called the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world and the devil are our enemies from the outside, but the flesh is the enemy from the inside. In Nehemiah chapter 5, I, we don't have time, but I'll give you a quick summary. Here's the quick summary. Go and read it um, when, you, when you can this afternoon. Uh, the rich people in Israel, the rich and powerful in Israel, were exploiting the poor and vulnerable in Israel, even as they were working together to build the wall. So even within their own community, the rich and the powerful were exploiting the poor and the vulnerable. And Nehemiah finds out about this, and he puts a stop to it. He says, this is going to stop. What you've stolen, you're going to repay. You're going to repent of it. We're going to do what is right, and we're going to have integrity as we do this. So repent, stop what's wrong, stop the injustice, and let's move forward. And that's exactly what they did. Nehemiah saw injustice. He saw a lack of integrity and sin inside his own group. And he rightfully understood that if it wasn't rooted out and repented of, it would bring down the whole enterprise. You see, where there is sin among God's people, it destroys the culture that God is trying to build among his people and for his glory. This can be applied both collectively to an entire church, to an entire organization, to an entire, uh, the, the, the whole church universally, or it can be applied to you individually. You can be taken out, not from just enemies on the outside, but you can be taken out from the inside. There's a popular serial podcast out right now that tells the story of a once famous pastor and uh, a once famous and influential megachurch and its pastor. And at one point in time, this church and this pastor were influencing Christians all over the world. People were coming to faith by the thousands. They had a media ministry that was just unheard of. From the outside, everything looked great. But the story, the real story there is that the senior leader had some serious unresolved sin issues in his life. And it led to a very abusive and very corrupt culture within the church. And very few people were willing or able to say enough is enough. Church was growing, things were going, looking great, and nobody wanted to be the one to step in and call out the senior leader's sin, and so nobody did. And eventually, the, uh, that unchecked sin destroyed the entire church. And literally, overnight... I mean, in a day, a church of 15,000 closed its doors and see, now ceases to exist. All the great things God had started among those people came to a screeching halt because they didn't put a stop to sin that was inside 
their own church. Listen, that church had its fair share of critics. It had, you know, it had critics from the outside, but it wasn't the critics at the gates that shut that church down. It was their own failure to address the sin from within. Nehemiah saw in his people that the greatest threat to the restoration of the people of Israel was not Sambalot, Tobiah, or Geshem. Those guys are losers, and Nehemiah knew it. They are a footnote in the history of God's redemptive plan for Israel. They're not real enemies. They were never going to take down the plans of God. But Nehemiah knew that the greatest threat to the restoration of Israel was their own sin because that's why they were in this mess to begin with. That's why they were having to rebuild a broken wall because it was their sin that led to their exile and their captivity. It was their sin that led to their city being destroyed. And Nehemiah said, we're not going to let that happen again. Where there is sin among us, we will repent, we will return to God, or else we will be forfeiting his favor on our lives. You see, most of Israel's struggles, if you read through the Bible, have very little to do with their enemies, but their own disobedience toward God. But God is always faithful to his people to redeem and restore them over and over and over again. And that's true not only with nations and churches, but it's true in your life as well. The greatest threat to your spiritual growth, the greatest threat to you living out the calling that God has placed on your life, the greatest threat to you experiencing abundant life is not your critics, or your enemies, or the haters, or even Satan himself. The greatest threat to you experiencing the life that God has for you is your own wicked heart wanting to go its own way. Where there is sin or disobedience in your life, you must, like Nehemiah, root it out and replace it with what is good and honoring to God if you ever want to fully experience the life that God has for you. In, Nehemiah's, in Nehemiah chapter 4, 5, and 6, Nehemiah fights opposition from outsiders, and he fights opposition from within. And if you look at the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus warned us against both enemies as well. If you read the four Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is always fighting on two fronts. He fights Satan himself. I mean, sometimes that battle comes front and center, where Jesus is fighting Satan himself. But you also see all these little other fights where Jesus is fighting the Pharisees that are burdening the people with heavy burdens. Jesus is always fighting his disciples, fighting against their own hearts, their tendency towards sin. He's always calling them to repentance and to faithfulness. But listen, through the cross of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus has disarmed Satan. He has disarmed the powers and the principalities and he has forgiven our sins. And through the resurrection, he has given us his Holy Spirit that leads us to obedience and leads us to abundant life. Jesus has already defeated our two greatest enemies, which are Satan and sin. The two things that threatened to take down Nehemiah and his people on rebuilding the wall, Jesus, 400 years later, defeated them once and for all. Satan has been defeated. Any lie he throws at you has already been spoken over by Jesus himself who says it's not true. Anything that sin can do to your life, Jesus has already removed those consequences by covering your sins with his blood on the cross if you will receive that forgiveness. And Jesus has defeated our two greatest enemies, Satan and sin. And in our life together as a church, and in your life as a disciple of Jesus, you will face opposition. You'll have enemies who seek to break you down or seek to persecute you. But here's what we do. When opposition comes from the outside, we entrust justice to God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you, blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For just as they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they're persecuting you. He also says, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. See, when we face opposition from the outside, we trust God that he is just. We pray for our enemies and we keep moving and living the life that God has called us to live. But when we experience the enemy from within, our own hearts, we remember that through repentance, God is gracious to forgive. And through the Holy Spirit of God, he can guide us into holiness and obedience and abundant life, the life we really want. So when the enemy from the inside stirs up, that is when we take our sin, we take our disobedience, we give it to God, we trust that God has forgiven us, and we seek to walk holy lives. That's how we respond to opposition. Let me pray for you, church. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and your kindness. And it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so, God, I know that um, some of us in this room, we're, we're trying to rebuild parts of our lives. And it feels like there's all sorts of um, obstacles up against us. And, God, would we, I pray that you would give us the courage to trust that you will fight our battles on, on those fronts. And that we'll remain faithful to what you've called us to do. But, God, we also fight a battle against our own heart. And God, you've, you've shown us the way to go, but our hearts just don't want to do it sometimes. And so God, those areas of our heart that want to go our own way, God, would you give us the courage to repent and to turn from our sin, turn to you, and walk on the narrow path that leads to life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.